Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Knife Surgical Critical Care podcast series. I'm Brittany Bankhead from Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas, and I'm here today with Caroline Park and Ryan Dumas from UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. We are excited to talk to you about sepsis today. This is especially well-timed since an updated surviving sepsis guideline just came out this year. We'll be going over SIRS, sepsis, all the newest guidelines, and we'll touch upon some of the major areas to focus on, including antibiotics, vasopressors, and whether or not to be utilizing steroid therapy. So Ryan, can you start and provide us with a historical overview of sepsis to get a better idea of where we've come from and how we've ended up at our modern management as it is now? Sure. Thanks, Brittany. Um, so really, this topic is incredibly important because of the burden of disease. Um, so sepsis is a bigger killer than cancer worldwide. One patient dies of sepsis every three seconds. There's a, actually a great article in The Lancet that was published last year investigating the global incidence of sepsis, which details this epidemiology. Fortunately, however, the mortality of sepsis has decreased by more than 50% over the last three decades. So how and where did this all get started? Well, in the early 90s, in 1991, the American College of Chest Physicians, uh, as well as the SCCM, convened a Congress in Chicago to emphasize that sepsis was a continuum and an ongoing insult. They had then defined the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, what we now know as SIRS. And they define this continuum of sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Now, of course, we're all very familiar with the shortcomings of the SIRS definition. SIRS, unfortunately, is very sensitive, but not specific, and really has poor clinical utility in practice. It can be present in simple, non-complicated infections, and it can be present in response to non-infectious triggers, such as trauma or pancreatitis, for example. So, about a decade later, in 2001, the SCCM and the European Society of Intensive Critical Care Medicine, as well as the American College of Chest Physicians, convened another Congress and held a second consensus meeting to update the criteria for sepsis. This conference continued to, to, to attempt to de determine the signs and symptoms of sepsis. Most importantly, it, made the, it placed the emphasis on the infectious source. The current definition did not adequately define that this was the that the sepsis was a response to the patient to an infection. So this conference established the diagnostic criteria for sepsis as a documented or suspected infection. These were categorized as general inflammatory, hemodynamic, organ dysfunction, and tissue perfusion variations. Finally, and most recently, sepsis three was developed and published in 2016. This is the newest consensus report and was not without controversy. We continue to emphasize organ dysfunction uh, and, consider, and consider the fact that SIRS and the SIRS criteria may change depending on many factors in the care of an ICU patient, and that SIRS has low sensitivity and specificity in discriminating sepsis and non-sepsis or non-infectious etiologies. So the international consensus definition of sepsis and septic shock was ultimately updated, SIRS was removed, and the QSOFA score um, was developed. For the first time, it was more focused on the pathophysiology of the host response and the subsequent related organ dysfunction. So sepsis is now really characterized as a life-threatening organ dysfunction due to a dysregulated host response to infection. Septic shock is a, is a subset of sepsis in which dysfunction is associated with a much greater risk of mortality 
than a sepsis alone. So to kind of sum it up, sepsis 3 ultimately took the SIRS out of sepsis, and they removed the the previously um, the previous etiology of severe sepsis out of the sepsis vernacular. The authors essentially determined that all sepsis is severe, so therefore removing that specific entity. So what about early goal-directed therapy? We can't talk about sepsis without talking about um, early goal-directed therapy. Does it work? Let's dry, dive into the literature. Most of you on this, listening to this podcast are probably familiar with the Manny Rivers et al. Public, publication in 2001 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Widely regarded as probably one of the highest uh, cited um, articles of all time with over 12,000 citations. Uh, this, this was the very first uh, study to put early goal-directed therapy on the map. The investigators um, randomized two groups of patients, um, 130 patients to um, uh, standard care and uh, 133 to early goal-directed therapy. Both groups had antibiotics given the same amount of time. Uh, but the aggressive uh, group, which was the early goal-directed therapy, which involved transfusion thresholds, trending CVPs, uh, and uh, aggressively uh, tr uh, trending SCVO2s, um, uh, in that group, the authors showed an absolute risk uh, of mortality reduction by 16% in-house, 16% at 28 days, and about 13% at 60 days. So there's a lot of, cr of criticisms of this, uh, of this trial. Uh, mainly men, that transfusions can be harmful, and the, the, all these patients had a lot of invasive lines um, and required uh, invasive monitoring. So as you might imagine, uh, so subsequently, um, several studies have been published examining early goal-directed therapy. There's really three key trials um, that, need, that you need to be familiar with, and then one meta-analysis. And what's really great about uh, these three trials is that they were designed with the intention of creating a meta-analysis down the road. The, the, often the Achilles heels of meta-analyses is that they, um, they pool studies that don't always use the same methods, therefore the data is difficult to interpret. But these authors worked together um, and they pooled the data of the process, the arise, and the promise trial. So the process trial is the American randomized control therapy, uh, excuse me, the American um, randomized control trial that studies early goal-directed therapy. The ARISE trial is the, the Australian RCT, and the PROMISE trial is the European RCT. All three of these use the same protocols, and patients were randomized into three groups. Protocol-based early goal-directed therapy, emulating the Manny River studies that we just talked about, and that was mandatory placement of central lines, uh, mandatory continuously monitoring SCVO2s and trending CVPs. Another group was protocol-based uh, standard therapy for six hours, with, and prompting resuscitation with IV fluids until euvolemia, and also keeping hemolumin above 7.5. This group didn't have mandatory lines or mandatory CVP trending. And the final group was the usual care, or bed, bedside uh, physician-driven uh, care. Across the board, increased treatment intensity in the early goal-directed therapy was, uh, was indicated um, uh, by increased uh, use of IV fluids, more vasoactive drugs, increased transfusions, and ultimately reflected in worse outcomes in these, these patient groups. Longer ICU days, increased need for cardiovascular support, um, and of course, increased cost, lines, more fluids. Importantly, all these patients had antibiotics initiated at the same time. And ultimately, authors found no difference in 60, 90, or one-year mortality, and no difference in secondary outcomes. So finally, the PRISM trial is also published in New England Journal of Medicine, and it is, it is the amalgamation of all of these three trials. Uh, and ultimately, the results are the same. So what does this all mean? You know, probably that really protocols don't necessarily improve survival, 
Um, but I think it's really important to have a checklist. I think the major criticisms of these trials is that, well, they were published almost 15 years after Manny Rivers. And really, at that point, early goal-directed therapy was so common that probably the usual care group was ultimately getting early goal-directed therapy anyways. And the providers were giving antibiotics in a much, much more timely fashion. So, um, Dr. Park, how do you think about sepsis? Well, first of all, that was an incredible overview of 20 years of literature. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you for that review. I think it's really important to look at sepsis holistically. You know, it's a really dynamic process that's time sensitive. You know, you're talking about your hour benchmarks. You first have to identify whether or not the patient has sepsis or septic shock. And some aspects are really relevant, right, or evident. The patient has a fever, they're tachypnic. And then once you start getting your lab data back in, you know, 40 minutes, an hour, you know, you start to see whether they have a white count of the leukopenic. So um, at that point, you're starting to look at your imaging studies. During this time is when you're thinking about your differentials and they're starting to narrow. What image do you want to choose and why? Do you need to write up a quadrant ultrasound? Are you going to get an x-ray? Do you suspect that the patient has a pneumonia or cholangitis? The distinction is really important because, you know, even with our broad spectrum antibiotics that we tend to throw at these patients, they are somewhat tailored to our suspicion. So, for example, if the patient has cholangitis, you're probably going to reach for something like Zosin or like a penin-based antibiotic versus something like perforated sigmoid diverticulitis. You know, is Zosin going to be sufficient? Probably. Um, but someone with septic shock, you might be reaching for Zosin over something like ceftriaxone or flagyl in a more straightforward case. So I think the challenge and the one that we face every day is how do we do this in a timely fashion but with incomplete data? The good news is that surviving sepsis has outlined many of these important areas that need to be addressed to deliver timely, appropriate care to your patient. This includes recognition within one hour of sepsis and then getting your data. That includes a lactate, cultures, before you, you know, of course, start your antibiotic therapy. While your labs are coming back, you are reassessing your patient. Do they have sepsis? Are they hypotensive? If the answer is yes, they're hypotensive, then you bolus the patient with crystalloids. 30 milliliters of kilogram bolus of balanced crystalloids. Reassess again. This whole time is all about therapy reassessment. Did the bolus work? Did you reassess the map? Is it greater than or equal to 65 millimeters of mercury? If the answer is no, then now we're going further down the algorithm. You're reaching for your vasopressors. So we're going to talk a little bit in depth about what the newest surviving sepsis guidelines say about antibiotics, pressors, and steroids. So first, let's talk about how much fluid. The panel actually downgraded this recommendation recently from a strong recommendation to a weak, weak recommendation based on the low quality of evidence. So there's actually no prospective intervention studies comparing different volumes of initial resuscitation and sepsis or septic shock. Um, you know, and there, there has been some retrospective analyses of adults, specifically in the ED with sepsis or septic shock, showed that failure to receive that amount of fluid within three hours of onset of sepsis was associated with higher in-hospital mortality. And the trials that Dr. Dumari mentioned, process, promise, arise, all of those fluid bolus is within the range of 30 milliliters uh, kilogram bolus. So really, it's already been adopted in clinical practice. So next thing I want to talk about is vasopressors. There are two strong recommendations from surviving sepsis campaign. The first one is the choice of vasopressor. The second one is MAPL. So for patients with septic shock on vasopressors, the um, surviving sepsis campaign recommends using norepinephrine or levofed as the first line vasopressor. It also recommends targeting a map of 65 milliliters of mercury. This is, of course, known to us. However, there are some weak recommendations. 
Consider an uninvasive line like arterial blood pressure to monitor blood pressure continuously. Consider initiating vasopressors peripherally with the caveat that really they should only be used for a short period of time because we all know there are risks with um, infusing vasopressors um, in a peripheral vein. If you've already done these things and the map is still inadequate, then consider adding vasopressin. That's actually a weak recommendation. And then, of course, the last thing is if you have documented cardiac dysfunction and you're still not able to add, you know, obtain adequate uh, perfusion, let's say the patient has a history of cardiac disease and you've given the volume, you've started the levofed, you've started the vasopressin, consider adding dobutamine or maybe even epinephrine. The important distinction in these recent guidelines um, was that it's really important to start the vasopressors early. Um, they are an integral component of managing septic shock. Vasopressors traditionally have been, um, you know, administered via central line. But, you know, when you're in the ED and you're trying to triage the patient, do all these things, do it peripherally, get a central line very quickly as soon as you can. Um, so speaking of um, uh, epinephrine versus dobutamine, um, Dr. Bankhead, um, what do you think? Yeah, I, you know, it's going to depend on my, on my patient, obviously. If, if we're talking about a young, otherwise healthy patient um, with a known source of sepsis and clearly no evidence of cardiac dysfunction at baseline, then a lot of times I'll reach for epinephrine as my third vasopressor if we're still needing um, some help with our hemodynamics. In a older patient or someone who has a history of <clears throat> CHF or um, some other cardiac uh, problems, um, that patient I'm probably going to reach for dobutamine uh, mostly because I like to switch it on, get it to a good, um, a good level where I feel like their cardiac output has improved um, using some of my monitoring tools. And then I will um, titrate my Levo, but leave my dobutamine on um, at the same rate. Uh, what about you, Ryan? What do you like? Yeah, that's a good question. I got to say, I um, don't use dobutamine that often. I, I think it's just because essentially training. Uh, I, I found it, you know, cause hypotension a lot too. Um, like Miller and I've, I've really just really honestly quite from experience and just reached for epinephrine. Uh, but I'm certainly, um, probably should maybe use it a little bit more aggressively in certain patients. Um, so for me, I, I am quite, uh, apt to start epinephrine certainly with anybody who has a sniff of cardiac dysfunction uh, on a bedside ultrasound to start or on a formal echocardiogram. I kind of want to move on to antibiotics now. So surviving sepsis guidelines make an important distinction in the timing of antibiotics, whether shock is present. So if sepsis is definite or probable and shock is present, administer antimicrobials immediately, ideally within one hour of recognizing that the patient has sepsis. If sepsis is possible and shock is absent, perform a rapid assessment of infectious versus non-infectious causes um, and administer antimicrobials within three hours if your concern persists. So important distinction, one hour versus three hours, depending on whether the patient has shock and you have a pretty high suspicion of sepsis. What about steroids? What do you think, Dr. Bankhead? Yeah, so another big question is going to be in treating this ongoing sepsis, whether or not you should be utilizing IV corticosteroids. And in this year's Surviving Sepsis Campaign, they do make a recommendation, um, albeit weak, with moderate quality of evidence to now utilize corticosteroids in this scenario. The dose they recommend is 200 milligrams per day, broken up throughout the day as 50 mg uh, every six hours, or as a continuous infusion. Um, and the distinction is really after 
that four-hour period of required norepinephrine or epinephrine to maintain an appropriate MAP. Uh, back in 2016, the accumulated evidence at that point didn't really support the recommendation if both fluid and vasopressors were able to restore the patient's hemodynamics. But in the interim, three randomized controlled trials, um, including both the VANISH trial published in JAMA, as well as a study by Anon et al. and the adrenal trial um, that was talked about a little while ago, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, those were published in the interim, as well as an updated meta-analysis uh, that looked at 22 RCTs um, and over 7,000 patients. And those found steroids to really accelerate the resolution of shock and increase in vasopressor-free days. Um, yeah, so the only reported downside to this has been an increase in neuromuscular weakness, but no obvious effects on reported mortality either way. Um, so obviously the optimal dose and timing still remains to be uncovered and seen, but with the body, body of evidence that we have now that exists, the recommendation is for 200 milligrams over the course of the day. Um, and, you know, timing uh, five to seven days is really what seems to be the most reasonable approach. Um, so what about you, Ryan? You've got a patient with septic shock rolling in the door of your ICU. They've been on vasopressors for the last four hours in the ED while they were waiting on a bed. Um, are you starting steroids or what have you done historically? And are yeah, these guidelines going to change what you do? It's a good question. I think. Um... My whole pendulum is maybe not swung, but but certainly moving a little bit more towards the less fluids. Uh, we don't have a lot of great literature in the ICU. Uh, we have uh, that's not true. We have very good literature, but one of the things we know for sure is that IV uh, the IV fluids and fluid balance is associated with mortality. So I think in sepsis, you know, I am trying to be more diligent about really determining. You know, that's what I ask the trainees and my fellows: what is the patient's fluid status today? And, you know, if we think they're euvolemic based on bedside ultrasound, uh, bedside echocardiograph, pulse pressure variation on an arterial waveform, then I'm more aggressive to start uh, vasopressors and I'm more aggressive to start steroids than I probably have been in the past. And that, quite frankly, is based on, you know, these guidelines and some of that literature that you just uh, summarized. Yeah, what I, about you? I think um, I think you really need to kind of go through your, your, your algorithm and, you know, getting your data doing the fluid bolus, doing the antibiotics, the vasopressors, steroids are not going to be something I reach for first. Or, you know, I'm going to, you know, obviously one thing we haven't really touched upon is source control. That That's the more obvious thing that needs to be done. But beyond that, I think steroids are going to be on my algorithm, probably low, a much lower threshold than I used to have um, to do steroids. And of course, as surgeons, we tended to be a little bit more hesitant about that because we were afraid of the hyperglycemia and the wound healing. But I think, you know, those concerns really haven't panned out. Um, especially with the doses that we're giving to these patients. So I certainly do consider it. It's just not something I reach for first. Um, but since you mentioned it, actor, actually, Dr. Dumas, let's talk about uh, POCUS a little bit. Um, so I, I really think it should be used liberally in patients with shock and all intensivists, medical, pediatric, surgical, uh, our anesthetists should be familiar with its use. You know, it's really easy to use, it's reproducible, and it can help differentiate between different types of shock. So, you know, and especially these days, a lot of our patients have other comorbidities, such as coronary artery disease, which may be aggravated during a high demand event, such as sepsis or septic shock. So it's actually not uncommon to encounter problems as acute coronary syndrome or heart failure exacerbations or cardiogenic shock from any of these things. So um, the reason why I think, I think it's important is it's just more data. I think it helps tailor your therapy. And then you end up, you know, maybe choosing a different vasopressor based on what you see. You might end up choosing epinephrine. And maybe, you know, ramping that up a little bit more than you would on Levofed, for example. 
Um, so I really think that it, it's definitely has a role um, and it can certainly rule out life-threatening things, immediate life-threatening things like massive PE, heart failure, tamponade um, that can be readily identified. Awesome. Yeah. So a little more about POCUS then it's, you know, very in vogue and kind of all the rage in these last couple of years and for good reason, but Caroline in my surgical ICU, this is a big point of contention where my residents are really great at using POCUS really liberally. Um, but we'll get to that patient where they're clearly at a good spot hemodynamically. They received their adequate crystalloid bolus, their urine outputs picked up. But then at the bedside, someone's put the probe on the patient and sees the patient as quote unquote fluid down, right? And maybe doesn't have great or perfect cardiac filling. So what's your approach to this patient? Are you going to give fluid based off the POCUS? Um saying that they need it when everything else is kind of saying they don't. Because uh, admittedly for me, POCUS isn't kind of the magic button that sometimes people tout it as, and I'm going to use it as one point of reference in addition to all my other non-invasives and hemodynamics and end organ perfusion measurements uh, and reassessing, but curious what you guys do. I mean, you, you bring up a great point. I think, um, yes, it's easy to use. I'm, I'm very excited that everyone's very excited to use it as well, but it's something that is not just a a data point in time. It's a dynamic measure. And I think the critical point is that the person who's doing it um, is doing it repeatedly, right? So, I mean, who knows if that RV look was even more, um, you know, empty yesterday or two hours ago. So I think it's important to assess, you know, your, the response of your intervention with POCUS um, and have multiple people see it or either the same operator um, who's, who's looking at your data. Um, Again, it's one data point. It's helpful. It is not the only thing to rely upon. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, so don't use your tools in isolation. Um, so there's the ultrasound, but then you also have the arterial line, which you should be at the very least measuring pulse pressure variation. And then you also have like a passive leg raise test that you can, you know, put your trainees to work and have them raise some legs. Um, and so if you use all three of those and they all three tell you the same thing, then that signal is much stronger, right? So if the IVC is collapsible in ultrasound, then you're thinking fluid bowls. Then you do a passive leg raise test and the patient's pulse pressure uh, variation decreases and their stroke volume goes up. Then, um, you know, that tells you that uh, they may be responsive to fluid. And then you have a CVP. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a big fan of trending CVPs, but if your CVP is in four all day, then you have another piece of evidence. Um, So, you know, I I like everything. I think it has to be used um, in conjunction. And uh, as Dr. Park just said, in trend. Um, and there, there, that's how you, I think you make the most academic decisions about fluid responsiveness, um, which, as we have said throughout this podcast, is that we know that, you know, a positive fluid balance is, uh, is associated with mortality uh, in the ICU. Awesome. Very good. So a few takeaway points from today's podcast. Remember that sepsis remains a very common problem in our patients <clears throat> and in our ICUs with really high morbidity and mortality. There's been a tremendous amount of work the past 20 years looking at early goal-directed therapy and breaking down all those points of treatment from assessment to choice and amount of fluid, timing of antibiotics, choice of antibiotics, steroids, vitamin therapy, goals of care discussions, and short and long-term outcomes. So we hope you learned today about some of the historical context of sepsis and how it's evolved and why we should be practicing the way we do in modern critical care with our septic population. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. 
Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.